Clean contact. I hit it again because that shot was a defining moment. And when a defining moment comes along, you define the moment. But the moment defines you. Hello and welcome to the Golf Practice Podcast. My name is Andy Hayes and I'm here with a full room of Pete Leinweber, Jansen Mizrak, Peter Donahue. Guys, this is the first time we've been together since the Half Set Manifesto podcast. Uh, it's great to see you all again. Um, yeah, I guess that's all I have to say. Yeah, it's good to have the crew back. Pete, welcome. Yeah, thank you. It's always good to be here and, uh, you know, I hope that... Uh, that the quality of the production is better than what well, we <laughs> forgot the bad about luck that. we got out of that half set manifesto. How, however, I enjoyed the podcast well, and listening to it. Yeah, every, everyone who seemed to listen to it has, you know, I've heard from multiple sources that like the audio was not that big of a deal, which I'm just flabbergasted by. I mean, I thought it was awful. I couldn't bear to listen to it, but other people, you know, apparently. Either they have low standards, I, no, I mean, or, or they just really wanted the content that we were producing. <laughs> yeah. So one of the I'd two. I'd love to think that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just before we, we kind of hit record here, we were t- Pete, you said something that I kind of wanted to touch on because it segues from our last episode. Our last episode, the three of us talked about our, our dream foursome, like mm. who we would have in our in our in our foursome and, yeah. and of course yeah. of course you know pete leidenweber has had tiger woods in his foursome and so kind of my argument against that is that is that tiger wouldn't be that good of a hang like i don't know that it would be you know i guess he's if, even if he's your idol like he wouldn't be that uh interesting like i don't think he would talk that much um and then just before going on now you just you know jansen asked a question from what well, was it from the Instagram or something of who would, would you rather play around with Tiger at your local municipal golf course or would you play Augusta National by yourself? And you, you if I'm quoting you right, said, well, if Tiger was cool, like I would want to play with him. But since he's not, I'd rather play Augusta. Is that is that right? <laughs> well, if I if if it was door number one or door number two, you know, and I didn't know which Tiger I might get, I'd, I'd definitely pick Augusta. By myself, because I mean, I know I'd have a day that I'd, I'd love, because <laughs> I love being by myself. And <laughs> I think Augusta is, is uh, just about as great a place as you could want to go to. Now, Tiger is a wild card. I mean, who are we going to meet? Are we going to meet, you know, that great smile, that cool guy who would be interested in, in us and interested in talking and sharing about, you know, things and talking about shots and stuff like that or would he be you know surly and condescending and like that you know i i don't know i mean i love to think of him as a cool guy because i you know but then you when you see him uh you know in certain interviews and things like that uh or not not so much interviews i think he always does a good interview but uh you know 
there's just some doubt about it in his history about how pleasant he'd be. Yeah, so I mean, it's a completely hypothetical and unrealistic question, but yes. but part of the fun to me is that you need to take it super seriously for in a certain amount of ways. Like you can't hypo- hypothesize that you're going to get fun tiger. Like it's part of the risk <laughs> in these dis- yes. in these questions. Yeah, I'm not going for the risk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm with you. Um, and so so uh, I, I've actually been thinking more about this since we talked last time, and I. I came to the conclusion that Tiger, that, that a potential alternate foursome for me would be my brother, and, and this would be at Augusta National, and it would be Tiger and then Phil Mickelson added to the group. Wow. And so I think the reasoning there is because Phil would definitely want to beat Tiger, and, and then Tiger, it would like bring him up a level. Mm-hmm. And so you would actually see a, like a competitive Tiger in that moment where if it's just like my family and tiger tiger's kind of going <laughs> to check out a little bit so i think you need someone there that's that tiger is just yeah. like really going to want to you know to go against uh and so phil is just like would be annoying and he would you know be trying to like ham up the group and tiger would definitely want you know to take his take mm-hmm. his stand so yeah i mean i don't want to harp on it too much since we had a whole podcast about it last week but Typical Andy, not given the whole story. Pete, I'll, I'll, I'll help can't. you out here. Uh, I accounted for that. I accounted for the, the the mystery of Tiger that we might get the good one, the bad one, or somewhere in between. I said I was going to play with my best friend, Rob, and I was going to play with my great-grandfather, uh, who passed away a long time ago, and I never really got to know. And I thought that mix of friend, family, and idol would be pretty darn cool. Mm-hmm. So... And I thought, too, like just seeing Tiger up close hit shots would have been well awesome. worth the money anyway. Yeah. So, and, and if we could play somewhere like St. Andrews or, or Augusta or, well, you or were even Canal, Canal Shores. Shores. <laughs> well, I, I, I followed it up. I did say Canal first, and I, I still stand by it. But there's some other courses that would be pretty cool, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you both, Jansen, didn't you have, like, your, we all had, like, deceased relatives in our group didn't we yeah we did um and i was actually just talking with one of my students um jeff shout out jeff i know you're listening uh on his morning bike rides he says he turns on the, uh. the podcast i'm like oh i'd love to hear it thanks for the support um and he said uh i guess one of his questions or maybe criticisms about like our podcast or our conversation was um if if we were bringing back someone from the dead like what what were the rules on that was it mm they have to come back to life like the day before they died or come back to life when they're in their prime. Cause like, you know, my granddad wouldn't have even been able to play golf. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, the day yeah. before, he, you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. So like, um, you know, and I, I think old Tom Morris would probably have a hard time getting around <laughs> as well, you know, you know, right now we don't, you know, maybe he's chipping balls. Maybe yeah. he's gotten clearance to putt, but yeah. we don't know. Yeah. Uh, so I think so, the way you know, there, so, it's a fantasy. It's a That's fantastic question. I think if it's a person who's living, it's, it has to be in their current state. But if it's a person who you're bringing back from the dead, you can, <laughs> you know, you get some flexibility on the Got age okay. that they are. Okay. You know, like you, would, I would say, like when you remember that person, uh, okay, like that would be you get to bring it back. You know, they okay, or maybe there's there, <laughs> there's there's like this weird, uh, you know, corner of of like 
evangelical Christian thought that thinks that when everyone <laughs> that, that in heaven <laughs> <it's> like, <laughs> that in heaven everyone is like 33 years old because that's the year that Jesus was when he died and so oh. there's absolutely no like someone just made that up but mm-hmm. it's like compelling i guess so people say it so you know maybe they're sure. 33 <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i hope i'm just, in good shape when i'm yeah, 33 yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but but i was also thinking about you know about that because i had my dad and old tom morris in my in my group and i wonder if like as you you know make the turn and head to the back nine would <laughs> would the group would the group just take like a somber would it get really sad because like these people like they're you know they're dead again they're going back they're going back and we got two hours left yeah and so i feel like that would be i I don't know like again it's part of the risk that you'd have to take Mm -hmm. in playing in choosing these people but i wonder if it would you know kind of diminish you know, it's just a lot of like psychological things that you know could be going on, and yeah. like how would oh, that man. impact you that, after the dreams, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's and like the dark. You take yeah. your hats off, you shake their hand, you step off the green, and poof. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. But you know, you you can always come back. I think to that field of dreams. I think that's the you know, it's the thing about being in the cornfield, man. You sure you can always back. come out. Well. And I, maybe we can move on after this, but I think it's funny that we're we're talking about okay, if we're bringing back someone from the dead, like what kind of state can they be in, right? Like that's the question. Mm-hmm. But we're also making the argument that Tiger is not at full health, so can't we choose him? Like, do we think Tiger is dead right now? <laughs> like, do we think his game's kind of dead? But you know, it. I guess there's two questions to be had there, like you know, the state that you could bring someone back from, or the state you get to choose, even the people that are alive, like. You know, huh. it, Spieth was in one of my picks. Like, mm-hmm. I would want Spieth in 2015, 2016, when he was just tearing it up. You know, oh, I want, you mean I want, you wouldn't want to, like, go with Spieth, like, looking for his golf balls? Because, you no. know, that would be, you know, without all those course marshals out there, the way he hits that driver, like, you'd spend a lot of time in I the would, woods. I like, want Spieth the week after he won at Chambers Bay. Like, okay. hot. All right. You know. Yeah. Oh. Okay. That's all I got. Yeah. I mean, it's great. It's a fantastic question. Pete, I mean, does anyone come to mind of, like, who would be in your your group? You know, I'd like to play with Hagen, uh, Walter Hagen, and uh, and Bobby Jones, for sure. And um, and then after that, uh, I think I'd like to play – I think I'd like Trevino to be in the group. Wow, so three. Yeah. Well, that's my, that's my uh, golfer – thing i you know Har- harvey ward uh, you know I'd, I'd love to play with harvey ward uh, my my bringing him back from the dead would be like you guys would be my family you know it would be my uncle joe uh, my father and my grandfather also part of the qu- i mean to push back a little you just gave us nine names and so you only get <laughs> i know you, you know, know it's, it's what makes it an interesting <laughs> question is because you have to you have to I gave kind you my of first get three. You, I, I, yeah, I, three. And so I would, I guess, my follow-up question to those three: If you, you go the, you know, the Bobby Jones, Walter Hagen, Lee Trevino, would those guys, would they get along? Like, would that be a good, would that be a good group? Those three and you. I think so. Yeah, I definitely think so. Hagen and Jones played, uh, you know, all kinds of matches together uh, back in the day. You know, because that that's that's how they. Uh, 
they were used. You know, there were housing developments in Florida, and, and these guys were commissioned. It was just like Legend of Bagger Vance. Mm -hmm. You know, they were... Uh, and Hagen generally beat Jones uh, in those matches. But, uh, you know, and they say Walter Hagen had the greatest disposition, you know, for golf ever, that he could talk and would talk on any subject in between the shots and only you know, really kind of focused down in the shots. And Trevino, you know, is – he just talked all the time, even around his shot. He'd <laughs> be fun to play with. He would be terrific fun to play with. And and just, you know, to uh, – just any part of his life to talk about, you know, what it was like growing up and how he got into the game and the, the legends, all the legends about him and, uh, you know, what's true and what wasn't. and be great fun. Would you um – let them, you know, would they use modern equipment or would they uh, have their mm. own, their own? No, sticks? I don't. Th what would I, you have? Well, I you know. think that they. I don't think. I think they'd use what they what they played with because, uh, you know, I mean, they said Jones's set, you know, which which uh, of Hickory's, you know, was something that they said, uh, you know, if you swing weighted his clubs, uh, they would have matched pretty darn good. And how did he get them that way? Well, he had a pocket knife and he paired the shaft down on them till he liked the feel of them but they were all individuals i mean he had names for all of them uh and uh and trevino i think trevino would rather play with a uh you know a small sweet spot and a ball that curves you know because mm -hmm. i mean the guy the guy was as creative uh you know, as can be, he played a he played a, a different game than is being played today. Mm -hmm. And which course would you play? Uh, that is a great question. I think that we well, Elite doesn't like Augusta, so we wouldn't play Augusta. I think we'd play a you know a Lynx course, okay. uh, maybe uh, Sand Hills. Nebraska? Yeah, I mean, a linksy. yeah. Have you played there? No. Okay. So it, uh, it'd be seeing a new place. Yeah. I mean, it would be a, it would be a hard be running place. Yeah, okay. You mm -hmm. know, with, with, you know, Chambers Bay kind of movement on the ground and that kind of thing. All right. I think that's a good answer. We, is that okay? Do you have any No, I, I think that was great. You explained it well. Uh, yeah, no pushback at all. Thank you. Oh, Sounds like a fun awesome. round. Yeah. Um, all right, so a question I have for you guys that I've been thinking about since my trip to California when I played Pasa Tiempo is, is what makes like a great course great? Okay. And so um, the more I think about Pasa Tiempo, I think it might be the best course I've ever played because as I think back on it, I can remember every single hole like quite distinctly like i didn't play that great it wasn't like my most fun ever playing golf but i still can somehow like remember every single hole in my head quite easily um where and so then i took that you know that exercise towards other like quote unquote like great courses i played like i also played olympia fields this summer for the first time and i can like I can remember the first hole and the 18th hole. That's it. I can't remember anything else. Um, 
and I, it's not like I was like drunk while playing. You know, that's not the reason that, that I can't remember. Um, Cog, you know, we sound so like snobby as we go through this. Like, oh, I didn't like Olympia Field. Okay, but it's, it's all right. So we're just talking. Um, Cog Hill, Dubs Dread, same thing. I can't remember any of the holes you know out there i can't remember any like distinct features i remember what some of the part threes look like i remember the hole where you kind of hit over a ravine um but i couldn't tell you if that was the front or the back nine whatever but i could but if we go to like Paz tempo i could tell you like so many holes and what it is and so i'm wondering if if you guys like is there a course that you guys have that uh what's like the most memorable course that you guys have played and like do you agree with this assessment of what makes a golf course great. Yeah. Um, I think you said it well, the way I always judged golf courses, I think I heard this when I was a kid, but is the par threes and like the variance in the type of par threes at a course. So are they all the same? Like dubs dread from what I remember, are, they're pretty similar. Um, this course sticks out to me in my head in high school. I went over to Ireland with my, my dad. Um, we put a course called the Island club, which is, just outside of Dublin, um, same thing. The par threes were all very unique. The whole course was very unique. It was the first Lynx, true Lynx course I'd ever played. So it sticks out to me for that reason, but also um, my equation of the par threes, it, it, it also passes that test as well because they're all so, so different. And like you said, Andy, I can still picture each, I mean, most of I played it 10 years ago, but most of the holes I have a pretty distinct memory of. And I didn't play particularly well, but... I still remember it, and it was still a fun round playing with my dad. I think he lost like twenty five golf balls or something <laughs> like that. Shout out my dad he's not he's not the best player in the world, but he had a good time um, but yeah, I think that's how I judge a golf course's uniqueness and uh memorability is through that uh that course again sticks out another one is uh Port Marnock in Ireland as well. I played that the following week that was that was really cool so part of that's the uniqueness of the links links course because we don't get to play that around here all that often. So the first time I ever played it, it was kind of, I don't know, it stood out to me. Uh, I'll go next. Uh, I, I, For me, I, I, I do like that. I like variety. Like you don't want to hit the same club on every par three. No. you know. I, and I do agree with that. I like Dubs Dread. It's like a six or seven iron for me on, I feel like, every, every hole. Um, I think... Uh, when I think back at kind of the top, I don't know, four or five courses of like, wow, like I really enjoyed that round, not just because of like maybe the experience or the opportunity or the people you're with, but like for the actual course itself. Cause, uh, I think of like that course had a good stretch of holes of like five, six, maybe even like seven hole stretch where it's like really solid. And I think like my most recent experience of that would be at Lakeshore country club. I got invited out with, from a couple of students out there to go play, and, uh, and I was blown away at the place, but it was more of the middle of the round where I kind of fell in love with the golf course and the land and the, the movement of, of the bunkers and the greens and just like, you know, seeing from, you know, standing on one green and seeing the next tee box and then seeing another green in the distance and, you know, seeing the land move. It was like really cool because the first four holes there, it's four par fours to finish or start and it's four par fours to, to end. So it's kind of like death by par four. But in the middle of the round, there's like some great par fives, some par threes that are snuck in there. And then the par fours have a little more variety to them than because I felt like the first four, the first two played almost identical. 
the third one was short, which made it unique. And then the, the other, the, the fourth hole, I, I hit like the same club in every green or I hit eight iron into three of those four par fours. And the other one was wedge. So it's kind of, you know, yes, the tee shots may be a little more demanding or, or unique, but it's the same, it's the same thing. So, uh, but that variety of when you start to sprinkle in, um, you know, the par fives and different length par fours. And then you get that variety of like different length par threes, the spice in there. It's like, that's what really, I think engages you because you're not hitting the same clubs over and over again. You're constantly being demanded to hit different types of shots and different clubs. So I think that's pretty cool. I think scenery has something to do with it as well. I think like when we played at Pebble holes four through 11 are just like, it's an incredible stretch of golf because you're on the ocean. So uh, that's cool, but you also look at the hole and the course makeup there. There's variety, right? There's a couple par threes there. There's a couple par fives and different length par fours. So that's that's cool. Um, I think back to the course I caddied at. Same thing. Thirteen through eighteen are start to open up to the water. You have one par five in there, a short par four, a really long par four, and you have back to back par threes. One of them is an island green, so that's pretty sweet. Um, I think back to a trip in Oklahoma where I played the Patriot um, golf course, which is the headquarters for the Folds of Honor. And the first tee shot you hit like off a skyscraper, it feels like. And there's like multiple tee shots like that on the golf course. So like any time you like feel the cart going uphill, you know that there's just going to be like this grand reveal. So like the land movement and the scenery of like those hills and bluffs in Tulsa, um, pretty sweet as well. So. That would be my answer in a couple examples of just stretches of stretches of good scenery and good variety. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think when I think of Pasa Tiempo, you know, I think he I think it's it's a routing uh, you know, experience. I mean, he starts you off with this elevated tee, you know, looking out over this magnificent long four par and and there's the ocean in the distance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, it's just inspiring and challenging, you know, right away. Uh, and, and then as Andy said, you know, you, you go around the course and, uh, he, he, he does at one point, I think it's 11 and 12 where he takes the same yardage and goes from the bottom of the hill to the top of the hill and then comes down the other side. And the, the holes are both like something like 380 or something like 400 yards on the scorecard. But, of course, the one uphill plays 450, and the one downhill plays 320. You know, so it's uh, – and, and they both, you know, like turn a little left, and so they, you know, they, they join each other very well. It's just a, it's just a very memorable uh, routing. Uh, of course, Pine Valley, you know, that was its claim – it still is its claim to fame, is that it has more memorable holds than – any other course in you know in the world um and uh and but i was just thinking about some local clubs and uh, old elm which is a donald ross course is uh, you know is a golf course that any of you guys could could uh, go out and play uh in the mid to low 60s uh, possibly and you have a lot of fun playing a match on that golf course because that was a uh, that was uh, that's a great example of a golf course that was built in an era when match play was the was the primary way of playing. So the the whole notion, the whole sense of the experience, 
was all about twists and turns that could happen inside of a match, not necessarily fairness, you know, when it came to like, oh, this is so unfair. Um, and, and Ross is, uh, uh, they say a lot of times Ross, you know, just would uh, make ovals on his designs and let the shapers take, take care of it. But when you play Old Elm, you see all of these really imaginative green complexes and really interestingly threatening and, uh, and, and a real examination of your ability to, to read and, and, uh, and manage you know, different situations out there. So I think, uh, you know, locally, I would say, and, and everybody, generally when you play uh, Old Elm, you come away with it like, like uh, you've just been hustled because, you know, you know that you could have gotten that course for more, but mm-hmm. somehow you didn't. Yeah. And, uh, and that's the way it plays, you know, it's tantalizing. And, uh, and uh, I think with those interesting greens and the interesting challenges, I think it's definitely, uh, you know, a course that could change every day. But, and I think you've got to get to the, to the ocean, you know, to find uh, that concept really fully realized. And that's why I think uh, golf courses like uh, Royal County Down and Royal Port Rush in uh, Northern Ireland are Royal County Down is absolutely. It starts off near the the water, and the dunes are so uh, so dramatic. And as you play, you get away from the dunes, so the golf course becomes a little less. After you get past ten, the golf course becomes a little less of that. So, but Royal Port Rush, um, when I played it, had. Every single hole was memorable on that golf course, with the exception of 18, which was just a, a hole to get back to the clubhouse. I think they've changed it since I played it. Perhaps it's it's a lot more than it was. That would that would definitely qualify. Where does Augusta fall compared to those courses? Oh boy, well that's you know, I'd have to shoehorn that. <laughs> Augusta. And and uh, and how about shoehorning Cypress? I mean, Cypress. How could you you know talk about uh, about a golf course about golf courses like we're talking about and not mention Cypress? I mean, good lord, Cypress is like it's got the highest highs of any uh, visually of any golf course that I've ever played. When you play. 14, 15, 16, and seventeen is like man, you've. You, you're in heaven. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking about a lot of times, or if you look up, like, course ratings on, like, Golf Digest or something, the, the things that stand out are, like, if a course has hosted professional tournaments and then, like, the cost of it. And that's such a... I guess I don't know why that why that is. Um, that's a terrible indictment of, uh, <laughs> of the state of the game, in my yeah. opinion. Like, who... I can have a hard time saying the next words without having an expletive deleted. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, be like Bay Hill or something like gets ranked, you know, highly or whatever. But but I've like walked around it, and that's not. Do you know what I mean? It's like or like it's not that interesting yeah, of a like place Durrell. to go. Yeah, Durrell, you know, was highly regarded, and and, and and now we we just find it sort of like not not all that much. Yeah. And I mean, when I was growing up, Medina and Olympia Fields were like, "Really? Could I go get a chance to play there?" But I, I think that uh, 
you know, I think that, that you're – I think that after you played certain golf courses more often and you get to the point where you can recognize, you know, the, the holes in your mind, I think all golf courses become a little bit more – you know, so some golf courses you definitely have to play a half a dozen times before you, you know, get all of them in your mind. But I, I don't th- – I think there are a lot of forgettable holes at uh, Medina and at Olympia. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to – it's very hard to separate your experience from playing them and kind of like the hype around the course from how the course is, I guess, for some, for lots of people. I don't know. I my most fun, One of my most fun experiences playing golf was at Mammoth Dunes at Sand Valley, but I, like, can't – after the first time playing there, just all the holes is just like a big blob of, of, of open fairway, which is not a bad thing. Um but even Spring Valley, which is maybe one of my top five courses, I could, after the first time playing there, I could have talked you through every hole. And so I don't know. It's so a, like a $22 walking versus $250 course. So I don't know. I mean, I mean, I, I agree with you that on the, the Sand Valley because I just feel like the entire property is like one massive golf course because yeah. you're right. Like the fairways kind of roll into one another and – just this journey. So it is kind of hard to put a yeah. number. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's hard to put a number to the holes that you're playing. But I would say that it's just as engaging as, you know, what, what Pete's talking about of just, you know, the dramatics of of the, uh, oh, yeah. you know, right, the highs and the lows. It's like cross-country golf, though. It's all like one large golf hole. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. that's a pretty that's a pretty cool experience. But I would say, like, I think Mammoth is more memorable than Sand Valley, in my opinion, because that closing stretch, like, you can get after it. You know, there's that drivable par four, that super dramatic par three. Really, all the par fives coming in. I mean, you're you're gunning for it in two. Um, these just <laughs> big bulgers. I mean, it's fun. Yeah. It's it's super fun. So, so yeah, the, the first time we did it, we had a caddy. It's still, like, every hole, caddy just hands you a driver, and it's basically, like... Really just breath. hit it as far as you can. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? There's no, and I'm sure maybe if we, there's a different caddy, they'd be able to talk through like pin positions and like if oh the pin's left here, so hit it here. But that wasn't really this who should, we had. So right, um, yeah. Because there is some truth to that. Um, shout out my caddy, Kid Rock. Like he he was helping me out with that because because playing it a second time and you find yourself on a different side of the fairway or you understand that green a little bit how it can funnel. To certain pins like there's ang- like even though those those fairways are massive there's angles that you want to have sure um into into some of those things even though they're massive you know you got to play play some pool to get around mm-hmm. yeah. all right our last segment i've been doing this at my house is just opening up a page of zen golf and reading from it so uh <laughs> we're gonna have a reaction um so i need you guys to give me a number between i guess between zero and and 199. <laughs> That's the, how many pages are in the book. And so whatever number you give me. All right, Jansen, what's, what do you got? Uh, 59. Page 59. Right. Wow. 1,300. Wow. 59. Jim Furyk. Oh. Okay, let's see. Let's make sure it's not oh, perfect. It's only three paragraphs. All right. I'm just going to read it. React. Okay. This is called Cool, Calm, and Collected. 
A vital part of our preparation for a golf shot has to do with alleviating tension from our body. Excessive muscle tension is an obstacle to making a fluid, powerful golf swing. There needs to be just enough tension to maintain our posture and hold onto the club as we swing, but any more, necessary, any more than necessary interferes with the flow of the swing. There's a simple demonstration of the effect of tension on your golf game that you can do anywhere. Take your putter and set up in your putting stance. As much as you can, let the tension in your body dissolve, including arms and hands, shoulders and belly. Then make a full pendulum-type putting stroke as you would for a long leg putt. Repeat the stroke back and forth a few times. Notice how freely the putter head moves. Now tense up your shoulders, hands and stomach. Swing again, intending to make the same stroke. Did you notice how abbreviated the stroke became, especially on the follow-through? The interference from tension in that putting stroke will have a similar effect on every swing you make. As the saying goes, you don't play golf to relax, you relax to play golf. The first step in releasing excess tension is recognizing where and how much tension there is in your body. The following exercise, okay, I guess let's go on to the next one. Okay. I didn't really have much to to respond to that, I guess. I don't know. Did anything stand out it to you? Have you ever done anything like that? I haven't. I don't have think you? I have either. Well, have you have you ever come across a, a situation where you've you know you felt like choked by the tension of the moment? And what what did, what's your go to? What did you go to? Was it successful? I absolutely have felt that feeling before, uh, whether it's nervousness or whatever, just a, a, being not present in the moment of the shot. I, my move is to take a very large, long swing back and forth, um, like well past where I would normally would be, um, and just feel my body rotate both directions. I'll do that back and forth. I won't, st I won't do a full swing and then stop on my follow-through. I'll just keep going back and forth. Um, that usually releases, rele releases at least a little bit of the tension for me. Um, but I'm certainly open to whatever you guys do. Uh, the, my for initial reaction to just what was said in those, those couple paragraphs would be the, the mindfulness body scans that the M360 students have, have done. And we've actually done that with, with a number of the programs here of, Hey, close your eyes and let's bring awareness to your body. You know, where do you feel tension? You know, me, uh, for some people, uh, maybe it's, it's their feet or their calves because they've been on their feet all day. Or maybe people's backs or hips are, are hurting because they've been sitting all day at school. Uh, maybe people's heads feel like they have tension in it because they took a test. I, you know, there's a thousand different examples of that. But um, that was pretty cool. And then I thought the last... Uh, the last sentence there saying how you relax to play golf rather than playing golf to relax. It's just a play on words of flipping it to have a different mindset about how you, I don't know, approach the day, approach the game, mm -hmm. approach your process. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. I mean, I would think more I think about this maybe as one of the more important golf lessons. So what he was talking about there of like releasing tension or not having tension, how many, you know, Jansen, in your lessons, you, like, 
I do this too, but like help people like move the club and feel how it swings at how often when you like step in there and then try to like move the club for someone, it feels like they're literally oh like God, a death yeah. grip on uh-huh. it. And so and, it, and part of that comes with just like instruction. You've told somebody to do yeah, it. They're yeah. trying their best to do it, yeah. but they're trying to gain control to put this club where you've told them to put it yeah. and they forgot to swing it. Right? Sure. So they are, they are muscle. Okay, I got it. I got it. It's right here. But it's hard, yeah. you know? And it's like, wait, wait, wait. Maybe, maybe we went about this the wrong way. So let's, let's feel this thing move. Let's, th- let's not forget the, the rhythm aspect to this or just like what this thing is actually called. It's a golf swing. It's not a called a, it's not called a, I don't know, a pull, a muscle pull, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. or a club yank yeah. or, a, or a hoist, you know? It's a swing. Yeah. I mean, it almost needs to be, you know, one of the first lessons. How many, I think to myself, like my eighth lesson with a person, I like move the club and they're like death gripping it. And it's like, oh, well, maybe I should have talked about this soon. You know what I mean? It's like such like a, oh, you know, we've been doing things a bit backwards here. One of my favorite questions I'll ask students is honest, like when they're putting specifically, like on a scale of one to 10, Grip pressure, one being barely holding on, 10 being a death grip, where do you fall? I swear to you, most kids are, or adults are like seven, eight. I'm like, let's make that a two. Like, it's, it's, it's interesting, though, like why they, they almost defer to believing that holding it tighter or stronger gives them more control when in reality it's actually the opposite. Um, and like you said, Andy, like sometimes I'll grab the club and swing it for them and have them keep their hands on it. And you, you have to like pull to get it to go back because they are holding on to it so tight. Um, but I think that would be a good first lesson, like the very first thing you say. Yeah, Stan Utley uh, talked, uh, talks about that, uh, that he's so thankful that when he was young and being taught the game that uh, Mr. Lanning um, – who was the volunteer coach in town, taught him to, uh, he calls, load and unload the shaft, which if you were holding a, a very whippy head-weighted stick like an orange whip or something like that, you, you, you know what that means then. You know, you, you get the, the, the shaft and the, the feel of the club on the, t- on the away swing feeling head-weighted, and then you allow that head weight to... To swing through, and so uh, so it's a it's a this thing. It's not a this thing. Sorry, it's a. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you at home who couldn't see that, <laughs> uh, I have no way of describing it any better than I just did. But uh, well, it's but like cracking right. a whip. I mean, that's kind of what you're saying. You can visualize the whip go back and load, and then unloading it on the follow through. It's obviously a golf club is not a whip, but well, you know. yes. And if you were if you were just gonna let's say toss it, I think tossing it would probably be you know just a little toss would probably be the the easiest way to feel load and unload. But it, you know it's it's got a wag. That's 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 yeah. the thing, and and how you wag it is like is that important? Is it important to wag it with? Forearm rotation, or is it, and and as opposed to wrist extension and flexion. For those of you at home, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is, 
<laughs> slapping. Think, Wrist extension and flexion means slapping yeah. sideways. I, I think Jansen's student just fell off his bike, you know, as he was like, experimenting with different, you know, wagging his hands. So hopefully everyone's everyone's still with us. Um, maybe I'll end with I'll end with one more uh, one more little reading from the book, Unconditional Confidence. How well we play golf is often a reflection of our level of confidence. We'd all like to have the feeling that every drive will find the fairway and every putt will find the hole. It's important to recognize that there are three kinds of confidence. The first kind is false confidence. False confidence doesn't help at all. It's just talking big, kidding ourselves. It can lead to taking unrealistic chances, usually with disastrous consequences. We may be trying to impress others into thinking we're better than we actually are. The truth comes out in no time on the golf course. Have you guys ever seen this? Yes. Have you ever hit a shot with false confidence? Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. Do you have a story there? No, really I just, quick. No, I just I, when you said that out loud, I just thought back to 18-year-old Pete. Oh. Hit plenty of shots with, what is it called, unrealistic? False confidence. False confidence, <laughs> for sure, with just disastrous consequences, yeah. Thinking that I was something that I wasn't or trying to impress somebody, for sure. Yeah, the first tournament I ever played in was at Medina, as a, as a golf professional, was Medina number one, shotgun, 15th hole, 420 yards, wood woods, wound balls, um, pond on the right, out of bounds left. I look at all of my fellow uh, competitors taking uh, two irons and lofted woods, and I said, bullshit, I'm going to show confidence. I'm going to drill this down the middle. Snap hook the first one uh, onto Medina Road. <laughs> he hit the second one right in the middle of the pond. <laughs> hitting, hitting four <laughs> after my drop. Oh. The second kind of confidence, I think this one, as maybe most people have, it's called conditional confidence. This is the kind of confidence, this kind of confidence depends on recent results. We are confident on the condition that we continue to play well. When things go well, our confidence can build until we feel like we can make every shot. But if things go badly, we start questioning our ability. We start asking, what's wrong with me? From there, down we go. If we're worried that we might hit a bad shot and we do, we feel even less confident for the next shot. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The antidote... Okay, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You, you seem to have a... Reaction. Yeah, I, I feel like this is, um, I mean, this is the description of most high school golfers. You know, you ask them how their match went and or, or how their round went um, in a tournament. You know, and get, get all these, I feel like all these kids are, um, I mean, they're really trying to, to act cool around one another on the team, you know, which is, which is cool. You know, that's, that's awesome. It's good. Hopefully there's a good team energy. There's good atmosphere. But at the same time, there, you know, there's some, some cancerous people on that team that probably uh, are not playing for full enjoyment or, you know, they always, it, the, the typical kid, you know, I, I never play this bad. You know, they bogey the first, uh, guys, I, I, I never play this bad. It's like, why are you, why is your, your scoring average always what you're shooting right now? <laughs> like, do you, you must have been playing really bad for a while. Like, um, 
so that's interesting. Or or just um, you know, the kids running up after every every turn. What you shoot? What you shoot? What you shoot? Uh, and. I think that bleeds over into maybe a lesson where we ask, hey, how did it go? And we're, I think when we ask that, what we really want to know is, hey, give me the debrief. Like, how was you, how were these portions of your game? How are the skills of your game? Maybe how was your mindset? Like, how was your routine? Like, these things that we've been working on. I don't really care about the score. Like, I want to know how the process was. I want to know, like, what do we need to do in this hour to get you better and feeling better about, you know, um, going into your next match? And, you know, they'll, they'll say, uh, well, it was it – was, pretty good and then you know i started doing this and i just gave up you know and uh it's really yeah. easy to just let it go especially when it's not going your way because you know some of these nine hole matches like you got to go out kind of gunslinging and if you just don't have it that day after five holes you can just kind of sail the ship in so it's just like high school golfer sophomore junior just that screams um, yeah, conditional is it conditional well, I, confidence? Conditional confidence. I see it though in like adult men too. <laughs> like yeah, just your typical like middle aged white warrior. guy. Yeah, who's <laughs> just like gets mad a lot unless you know unless like the first two holes go well and then it's like well, I got confidence I can do this. Um, you know what I mean? It's there's there's yeah. never there's never a story about how they like turned things around after one bad hole it's like well shot 50 on the front nine and then 39 on the back you know that's like a very common score that you hear about it's like well it's because you kind of like relaxed a little bit you could have done sooner yeah or or maybe they did turn it around but but they still paint the that story in a negative light like well you know i did play better on the back but you know that'll never happen again and it's like wait wait there's something (laughs) behind that it's pretty good Mm -hmm. yeah there i mean you you know you're you're living out your story you know in a round of golf so whatever story you got about yourself in the game yourself in life that's what's getting put down on film and uh you know i think a lot of people uh I can speak for myself, you know, play golf and the round of golf is sort of uh, some way of redemption, you know, or, you know, proving yourself or because you're not really sure what your worth is, you know, and so you need validation, uh, you know, through the round and you're afraid that you're not that good. And so that fear, you know, starts to, it's all, everything is conditional. Oh man, I'm really... You know, I'm really doing well. I have a friend who uh, uh, you guys know who just uh, played in a tournament, a super senior up at Pine Meadow. John Byrne is his name. He's 81 years old, and on the in the first round, he went out and shot 81. No way! That's so cool. Yeah, so awesome. But he called when he called me, and he left uh, he left me a message, and and he said a couple of things that I thought were interesting. One particularly interesting, and one of them was that uh, it's the round tomorrow that will prove everything or validate today's round. Like, if I don't play well tomorrow, then that invalidates the 81. And I, I, have to, I had to jump in and give them my two cents about that because I, I don't think that's a – I think that's not right, you know, because hit 81 is him. He came out and shot 93, you know, the next day. But, you know, that's a – regression to the mean you know it's 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 like that happens to everybody right it doesn't it means what you make it mean 
you know, but uh, to me, when you invalidate yourself uh, by uh, by making something of your stumble out on the golf course and you make it mean more than, well, you just need more experience walking the walk, right? You, you just couldn't walk far enough through the coals, Right? And, and, and so the next time you get to that place and you, the, the skies start to get cloudy and, you know, and blowing away your, your good feeling of confidence, that's the adversity you are waiting for, right? Can you walk one more step? Can you make a good play in the face of this oncoming storm? And uh, I think that's how people develop grit, step by step until they can walk all the way to the end, whether that's the 18 holes or the 72nd hole. The antidote to conditional confidence is unconditional confidence. Unconditional confidence arises from connecting with our basic goodness. I think we did a podcast on that, titled Basic Goodness. Yes. We believe in ourselves as decent people and in our golfing skills for our level of play. This doesn't mean that we expect to hit every shot perfectly. It does mean we can handle whatever the result is. With unconditional confidence, our self-worth as a human being doesn't depend on how well or poorly we strike a golf ball. We see our nature and our abilities as basically good and the difficulties we encounter as temporary experiences. Instead of assuming something is wrong with our swing and trying to fix it, we reflect on what may have interfered with our intention on that shot. This approach makes it possible to quickly turn things around and play well again. Unconditional confidence takes a big perspective, independent of moment-to-moment results. The bigger the perspective we have, the better we can ride the inevitable ups and downs within a round, over several rounds, or even longer. We can handle difficulties with a sense of humor, knowing that these things come and go. We can regard experiences of success with a sense of humility. These also come and go. Whatever we encounter, we can be fearless in the moment. That's the expression of true confidence. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> and that one speaks for itself, right? Like, I mean, that's what you want to strive for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like the sense, sentence of like the, if we have unconditional confidence, you can handle difficulties with a sense of humor, knowing that these things come and go. And so it's it's always interesting to me playing with with people um, who like once that first like difficulty comes, whether it's like a hit shot, a shot they hit out of bounds, whether it's a missed short putt, whether it's like a chunked iron, like what their reaction to it is. And I think it's cool how this kind of shows. Well, like your reaction to that is gonna shows like what type of confidence you have whether it's false confidence conditional confidence or unconditional confidence um i feel like so often when i play with new people and they have like a really really like negative reaction to like a missed five footer or something it's just like kind of like a little startling it's like well you know that you only have like a 70 percent chance to make that anyway like why why are you so angry at this thing and it's like oh well here you just you know your whole self-worth and confidence was built on whether you made that putt or didn't make it and so like if you could get to this place of unconditional confidence you could could laugh at the bad shots instead of um you yeah. know i saw a line the other day i forget the the players this former nba player who said i'd rather go 0 for 30 
from the field in 0 for 9, because 0 for 30 meant that I kept shooting after going 0 for 9. I thought that was funny. I don't know if it was a joke, if it was serious, but uh, I feel like there's a little bit of unconditional confidence in that. He knows that he, at some point he, he's going to make it, and at, after going 0 for 9, he didn't quit on himself and say, oh, this is the end of the world. I'm, I'm done. I'm never shooting again. Um, I think I've struggled with the first two, for sure. I mean, I told you the story of, of false confidence. Uh, there was plenty of that in my junior golf days. Um, and then what was the second one? False confidence? Conditional. There's false condi- confidence, conditional, unconditional. Conditional confidence certainly have been there. Uh, I think of that as like a, at one point I was a very streaky player. The highs are the uh, very high and the lows are very, very low. At one point you're like, why do I even play this game? And then at one point you're like, I'm going to go pro tomorrow. Like those jumps were week by week uh, as a teenager. And like you said, Jansen, a lot of high school golfers suffer with that as well. But we do strive for the unconditional confidence for sure. And I think as, I mean, the three of you can say or can agree with, I think as you get older and mature a little bit more, that becomes more prevalent, or at least in your golfing life, you hope that it becomes more prevalent, that you can laugh at a bad shot or not have a, such a strong reaction to a missed five-footer or a shot out of bounds. Yeah, I think that once once you you have that, whatever that is, and we, we could have a psychologist or psychiatrist in here explaining it to us, but once... If you have that kind of reaction to negative outcomes, I think it takes a long, it's a long maturation period, uh, you know, towards deliberately working on that until, you know, you start to be able to control your perspective. I, I just think, you know, a lot of times you know, adults are try like hell to encourage kids not to be so hard on themselves. I think, you know, it's like wasting your breath. You know, it's, it's uh, you, you should give them a time capsule, you know, and, and or, you know, uh, come up with a better solution than I've come up with. But, you know, t- uh, telling somebody, hey, you shouldn't be so hard on yourself is like you're not getting to the root of their problem. You're just accusing them of something, you know. Yeah. Well, conditional confidence is the most natural thing to have to me. Like, if I hit two bad drives, to me, my brain is like, well, the third one will probably be bad. You know, like, what, what, I'm not going to be able to really change much in the, in the moment. So, like, oh, of course it's going to be bad. Um, and I don't get mad. Like, I don't get mad at myself. But it's like, oh, okay, this will just probably happen. <laughs> and I don't know. Uh, but that's not, like, great either. I don't know. No. Like, I don't know. Like, Pete, can I ask you about your game? please we like played i just remember around like sunset valley we played and you just like banged in like like eight like six foot putts with like tons of pace like right into the back of the cup mm-hmm. i was like what do you remember what i'm talking about yeah, I like it's like wow that is this guy like the most like confident putter i've ever seen like are like are you that or has that like was that do you think that was an example of like conditional confidence for you of like you had like probably a stretch of rounds where you just like felt like you could make everything. Yeah. There's no doubt in my mind that that's conditional. I'm not, a, I, I wouldn't consider myself historically a great, great putter. That wasn't the strength of my game. Uh, so when it's on, it's on, like I said, so, and I got a new putter this year, so that was something that maybe played a role in that. But um, I realized that if I'd rather bang it in the back and try to make it that way and give it a confident stroke, then, lip it out on the short side, getting a kind of a shaky 
unconfident stroke. I mean, I think everybody would agree with that. But yeah, there was a stretch of time or a stretch of rounds this summer where I was, I think, at, uh, where was that? Lasonia. I had like a five foot birdie putt and I like stepped it in, hit it, and it hit the back of the hole and bounced out. Like I was that at that, it was to that point. Um, but that's certainly partially conditional confidence. Maybe part of it is I stopped caring so much about what I shot because back to those stories I said earlier, at a certain point when I was in my late teens, early 20s, that's all I cared about. That defined me was what I was shooting on the golf course, which is why I said the thing about, like, if I played a couple bad rounds in a row, what's the point of playing golf? Why do we play this stupid sport? And then if I put a couple good rounds together, I'm like, could I make the tour next year? Like you never know. That's, and that's something that I think, like you said, is just the natural response for people is conditional confidence. Yeah. I mean, it is for like, I've had great driving rounds this year and terrible driving rounds this year. And it's just all like, how, how am I doing that week? Or how did the first couple shots go? And I, it's only when, when things go off that I tend to like, look at things like Zen golf, like, Oh, I should work actually towards unconditional confidence. So I'm not so down you know, about the bad shots, but it's like never when things are going well that, do you know what I mean? Like just because it's going well, we don't have a sense of like working towards like approaching it with a better form of confidence or outlook, but mm-hmm. maybe we, well, this goes should? back to that. I don't know. I don't <laughs> that one uh, podcast we had where we talked about like how we feel when we're playing well and what we're thinking and what we're yeah. doing as yeah. versus to when we're playing poorly. Yeah. And I remember saying something like, I don't even know what I'm doing when I'm playing well. Like I don't really, yeah. I can't really, I can explain what I, what I'm doing when I'm playing poorly. And maybe that's a, a good indicator that that's most of that is conditional confidence and that you, when you're playing well, you're like, Oh, like I'm playing well. Like, what do I do now? How do I keep this going? As opposed to like, maybe I should just try to improve my outlook or my, Prep. Jones called it courageous timidity. I mean, that's that's the way he described his mindset playing competitive golf, tournament golf. That he wasn't, um, that he was aware of the dangers, that he was sh- kind of shaky about the possibility of stumbling into those dangers, and yet in the face of that finding, you know, some calm place to execute his shot from. But uh, he was never you know, like racing headlong around the golf course, you know, uh, so confident that he, you know, could be on two wheels and go around the curve. A little timidity. Yeah. Uh He felt, Mm -hmm. well, that was, that's, that's, well, that was his description of it. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe that's a good one to end on. Thank you. Um, Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Andy. Talk to you all next week. Okay. Contact. I hit it again because that shot was a defining moment. And when a defining moment comes along, you define the moment. Or the moment defines you. Well, here it comes. Come on,